Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. I'm joined on this episode by first-time feature film director, Jason Beecham, to talk about his film, Polara. Polara tells the story of TJ, who on his 18th birthday, is given a key from a father he'd last seen eight years previously as he was being hauled off to prison. With the key is the address for a proposed meeting, 3,000 miles and two weeks away. The key unlocks a time-worn 1968 Polara convertible with a coffin welded to its floor. With each decision that follows, TJ plunges deeper into the mysterious and beautiful landscapes we all navigate, on our own, with our tribe, through the shifting turns of the road ahead. Here's the film's trailer. Guys like us who grew up in these little towns and get opportunities very often. And so when they come, you want to grab it. You want to go for it. You James Mantis kid? You just turned 18? Yeah. Your old man wanted me to give you this. Pick it up at Billy's garage. My father sent me these keys. You don't know what they're for? No. Start saving money for gas, because you're going to need it. Dude, is this thing a gift or a curse? This isn't about the car. It's about you. You've been challenged to drive 3,000 miles in a beat-up old bomber to find your father. I haven't seen him one time since I was 10. He's a famous guy. Rock and roll. He could have called me or something. He made mistakes. What? Wow. No trip. Happy motoring. The headlines say the end is near. This is a good idea. So what are you doing out here? I was on my way to California. Me too. What are you so freaked out about? What am I freaked out about? Your father spot welded a metal coffin to the floor of this car's trunk. What's going on, Phyllis? No uh, dead bodies or nothing, right? I swear the sky is bigger out here. It's wild. You drive 10 minutes off the highway and the whole world completely changes. Do you feel ready to see him? My expectations are pretty low. You know, maybe he's trying. There's two sides to every story. I'm less scared that he won't show up as I am if he does. What's this? Oh. Oh, it just came with the car. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And now on to my conversation with Jason Beecham. Hello, Jason Beecham. Welcome to Making Media Now. Michael, thank you so much for having me, man. And congratulations on making your directorial debut on the film Polara. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a wild ride, but we're we're finished with the film. We're excited for people to see it, and I'm excited to talk about it. 
And I think ride is probably the uh, operative term, considering that this is your classic road movie. Uh, and we'll get into the we'll get into the plot in, in just a minute. I also want to mention that Filmmakers Collaborative is the fiscal sponsor of your film, Polara. And we're very pleased to be uh, associated in whatever manner we can be with your film. So tell us the plot of Polara and what it, what it was about that plot and about the script and the project that was interesting to you. Let's take it from there. Well, I'm an 80s kid, so uh, I grew up watching a lot of classic films um, that instilled hope. The story of uh, finding yourself and uh, finding your own answers is very prevalent in this film. Um, the writer, Bill Haney, did a great job of weaving in little moments of truth uh, for the character to experience. Um, in terms of the plot, without giving too much away, um, we have... A young kid who is um, gifted, as the trailer will show, gifted a car from a father who is estranged. Mm -hmm. And he is faced with the choice uh, of getting answers of who his father was, what what this gift means. Is it a double edged sword? Is there an ulterior motive by the father uh, and what the road has in store for him? Um, and anybody that's taken a road trip knows that there are certain things that happen along the way. And this kid experiences quite a few things that are troublesome for him. They're also revealing mm -hmm. to his nature of the man he's going to become. Um, and it takes place during a time in his life that is monumental of kind of developing who he's going to be. And mm -hmm. I think uh, for every person, there's a time in your life where you're faced with difficult decisions. And it, there's so much fear that's involved of standing up to a best friend or meeting that new girl or new guy or whatever that forces you to break a barrier that you're not comfortable with because you've never, there's no precedence. You've never been there before. And our character gets the chance to discover things about himself meet new people, experience things on the road and does so with a lot of, uh, what's the best word? Optimism, honor. hope, tre trepidation, all of the I was going to say, I was going to say honor and hope. Sure. He, he honors himself. He honors the people that are around him. Mm -hmm. uh, and he tries to come at it the best way he knows how he walks a very thin line in many cases, but we've all been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moments. when the movie yeah. opens, we're meeting 18-year-old TJ, who uh, is being gifted by a stranger uh, the keys to a classic car, and the car gives the film its title, Polara. Tell me about the Polara. Tell me about why why that car, what, what that car uh, symbolizes in, for the movie and for the character. So it's a 1968 Dodge Polara. I say Polara, you say Polara. Um, you're probably I'm not right. <laughs> exactly sure how the manufacturers of Dodge. It's pro you're probably correct. It is probably a Polara. I'm sure um, we could go on YouTube and pull up some old ad for it. I'm sure. I'm sure we could. Welcome to that episode of Jay Lone's Garage, the car featuring today 1964 Dodge Polara. Um, that car was a a gift to us to be able to utilize. Um, one of the executive producers uh, and writers, his 
he's connected to the car, connected to the car and the car has its own history. If you will, it was, um, his wife's vehicle that she and her grandfather built from the ground, like kind of restored together. So even within the car itself, there's a, a little bit of family. There's a, there's a lot of history. The car has a lot of quirks, like inside on the dash, like, you know, those little, um, uh, what is the, it's like a stamp where you can like emboss the letters on and then it's sticky on one side and you can put like for notes sure, from like yeah. the 1980s. Well, yeah. those are all over the vehicle <laughs> with notes of how to operate this vehicle uh, in certain weather conditions. Let's see, we got a flat tire at one point and we went to change, I went to change the tire and I'm cranking down on the lug nuts and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, and I'm, I'm a pretty decently sized guy. I'm, I'm capable. And I could not get this thing to budge. And our traveling mechanic walks over and he goes, read the, read the note on the, on the hubcap or not on the hubcap, but on the, on the wheel, there is a little sticky note that says to turn it the other way. So instead of turning it counterclockwise to open it, you turn it clockwise. So what would be tightening it You have to turn it that way to loosen it. And I just thought, man, this is such a quirky car. It's from a different time. It's from a different era. Um, Things like things that people don't necessarily get the chance to experience these days. The um, the gas where you put the gas in is hidden behind the license plate. The license plate. Uh, And it was funny because our main characters, our main characters didn't know where any of this stuff was, they didn't know how to operate it in the beginning. So we had to do a whole bunch of trial runs with everybody to get them used to this car. You know, um, the power steering is a little bit different, uh, like how it floats across the ground, you, you know, these big heavier cars, they're boats. So they kind of, you know, when you're going 55 down the, down the freeway, they kind of float with you. So the car itself, uh, to get back to your question, the car itself has a lot of memories hidden within it. It has a lot of quirks, and therefore offered a lot of beauty to the film. Um, yeah, the car itself almost becomes a character in the film. We we thought so as well. And when we got into the post-production process, that was one of our keynotes to our sound designer that we wanted this car. Um, there are moment, moments of solace for the character. Mm-hmm. And we wanted this car. I want We wanted you to feel the presence of the car because in a way, the car is the father. And you've seen the film. And so, you know, there are a couple of times uh, without giving it away. There are a couple of times where this kid treats the, the car like he is like it's his father. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and and a kid who's been estranged from his father for eight years when we meet exactly. him. And he's been tasked with this uh, sort of this mystery assignment of delivering this car all the way in the other start of the uh side of the country the movie begins in massachusetts and we we uh catch up with the character at the end uh where he's going to meet his dad in california and uh a lot ensues between those two parts of the of the country when you were thinking about approaching this film as a director and a first time director um what what road movies came to mind in terms of being formative for you or inspirational for you Oh my gosh. Um, my, my inspiration, oddly enough, didn't come from any of the road films just because of the nature of the script. Mm -hmm. There are a few other movies that, um, 
are referenced. There are a couple of shots, like my favorite movie of all time is the Goonies, as you can <laughs> see behind me. Um, and there are two shots in the film that uh, pay homage to uh, two of the shots in the Goonies. Um, but that film, much like the Goonies, it's, it's all about hope. It's getting answers and fixing problems and going outside of the lines of all the things that the people that love you and care about you, you know, much like in the Goonies, the mother is like, hey, stay here, stay in the house, don't go anywhere. And he's like, no, I need to do this. And TJ kind of does the exact same thing. He goes against everybody's best wishes and follows what he needs for himself. And that's a that's a that's a paramount moment for a young man to say, I, I've got to do this. I know I could get stranded on the side of the road, um, but I'm I'm going to go for it. Yeah, it's a uh, bit of the the hero's journey. Very much so. Um, and we we also get to see a lot from William Chris Sumter, who plays Jake in the film. Um, and there's a TJ's very best friend. bond. His best friend uh, ends up surprising him and goes on this journey with him. But as the film progresses, uh, you get to see TJ grow a little bit. You get to see him go from the guy who's taking advice and taking answers and being demanded to growing past that. He becomes the person who's like, no, 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 I'm going to do this. I've got to do this. And he makes decision for himself. So you get a lot from that. And then we have the lovely Catherine Laheen, who is also in the movie, who uh, plays the role of Maeve. And she provides this very like mature, lackadaisical, very much like two passerbyers in the, you know, in the day that just are good people meeting one another. And she offers him sound advice. She um, encourages him when it's right on the cusp of of losing said courage. And we get a lot from her as well. And then, of course, we've got the journeyman actor, Paul Guilfoyle and Ross Partridge. So we've got some some wonderful talent in this movie to help tell the story and um, navigate our our star through, you know, moments of fear and giving him the courage and hope and adventure. So part of your background in the filmmaking world is as an actor. Uh, I, you know, I noted in uh, reading about you, you uh, you've appeared in several prominent television shows and some films. Tell me about how being an actor allows you to uh, sort of review and and work with a script in a particular way and with other actors in a particular way. One thing I noted in your film uh, in Polara is that there's a, uh, a real naturalism to the way the characters are all engaging. And it 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 almost feels improvisational to a degree, which I always take as a great credit to the uh, naturalism of the actors. That is very true. And I, I, I think a lot of that stems from Finn. Finn is so honest. And Finn is playing TJ. Finn, Finn plays our TJ, our lead role. Finn mm -hmm. Haney is one of the most honest individuals I've ever met. Um, to the extent that in the beginning, when we first started talking about how he wanted to handle some things, he was a bit fearful. And that's, you know, rightfully so. He's, it's his first time carrying the weight of an entire movie. And he was asking me what to do and how to do it. And I looked at him and I said, this film is going to be exactly what it needs to be. You need to relax. It doesn't matter if you think you've messed up. It doesn't matter if you think you've done well. Just be who TJ is and let these moments happen to you as if it's happening to you in real life. 
and he calmed down a little bit. And there's, that's not to say that during the process, we didn't change some things along the way, but I think the real hero of how his character came to be was that his character, you know, what makes him who he is Mm -hmm. was able to shine through. And that's just honest. He's very easy to watch. You almost root for him silently, even like when it's the most simplest moment, you're like, I like you, kid. You're you're easy. You're easy on the ears. You're easy on the eyes. And I can tell that you are being genuine. And that, I think, is what gave this movie the the backbone that it has of believability, of naturalism, of being able to make you feel comfortable. What was the production calendar like? When did you guys start shooting and when did you guys uh, enter picture lock? So we had, as with any road trip film, uh, we had some bumps along the road, if you will. Uh, <laughs> quite literally. We started, we, quite literally. We started in um, May of 2022. We filmed for three and a half weeks. Um, and that took us all the way from Boston to L.A. And then mm-hmm. when we got to L.A., we revisited some of the footage and we wanted more. And so the car had to get back to Boston. And so Bill was kind enough to extend the shoot and we got exactly what the film needed, which is what you see. And we entered into picture lock. Um, So we took almost a month of darkness. So we went dark for a while and Mm -hmm. made plans and and made some changes and really honed in the shooting schedule. And then we filmed for another two weeks. So in total of actual film time, I think it was five weeks uh, of filming Mm -hmm. in total. And then we went to picture lock on January 16th, I think, or 17th was picture lock. So after that, all the other fun started to unfold. Did you run into any uh, weather related issues or travel related issues that that forced you to have to improvise? I'd like to say weather wise. Yes, but we actually didn't. It rained one time. Wow. You got lucky one time. And that's what you see in. and we were in Beaverkill, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it rained one time. And there was like, there was a moment in the movie that I wanted to have kind of this moment of the souls with, with, with our TJ character, yep. with him out in the a wide open. And you get to see the, the storm clouds rolling in, in the background and, you know, the lightning, um, which yeah. we kind of insinuate in one part of the film, if you know what I'm talking about, Yeah, um, where he's kind of just, sitting with himself, sitting with the decisions he's made thus far um, and questioning the rest of his journey. And I really wanted to see like those big billowing, you know, in the, in the flats of Utah and see the big billowing clouds in the background with the heat lightning. Um, But it never came. We, we literally had one rainy day uh, of the entire production Um, outside of that. When we got to uh, the grand Canyon, Uh, We had an elevation issue with the vehicle and I didn't even know this about old cars. And I'm, I'm, I've done two car shows. I've worked on two car shows and I had never dealt with an elevation issue with distributor points. I didn't even know what that was. So our traveling mechanic was like, enlighten me. (laughs) Okay. So a distributor point apparently has something to do with the engine's timing and its ability to um, tell the piston or tell the spark plugs when to fire. Okay. Um, and 
our traveling mechanic, uh, Evan Emerald was so helpful, uh, with keeping this car running, you know, without a hitch. And we get to grant, we get to the grand Canyon and it's stalling and it's stuttering and we can't shoot. And we're shut down on the side of the road. It's, you know, it's 95 degrees out and everybody's sitting inside the RV and the AC and, I'm driving all the way back down to Flagstaff from Grand from the Grand Canyon to get to an auto parts store. I go to five <laughs> different places. And the joy I'm of indie filmmaking. I know, and I and and I'm in these shops, and I'm like, "Hey, do you guys have distributor points for a 1968 Dodge Polaris?" And they're like, "No." <laughs> Finally, I think I ended up at a O'Reilly's. Uh, it was the last last mechanic shop there, and I ended up at an O'Reilly's, and. I call Evan and I'm like, Hey man, what does this thing look like? What I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be like some massive part, uh, because it's controlling the engine and it, Michael, it's this big, it is this big. And it is like you, when you look at the tool to, um, set the parameters of where it's supposed to, the width that it's supposed to be, at, it's like smaller than a human hair. <laughs> and what ends up happening is at, at a higher altitude, apparently the metal starts to bend. Yeah. And it changes the timing. And so the car just won't fire. And so it shuts it down. And I was just like, oh my gosh. So we ended up buying two of those. We ended up having to change it out twice along the journey. Um, and I just found that to be unique as well. That the father gave his son a car yeah. that yeah. was knowingly going to be trouble, troublesome. Yeah. Um, and so on its surface, it's like, oh, you gave me a car. Any kid would be grateful to get any car from their parent. And this kid gets the car. And at first he's, you can tell he's excited. He's like, yo, I got a car. And our Jake character makes the comment, is this a gift or a curse? Right. A little bit of, right. for, little bit of foreshadowing yeah. um, in that moment. And just like Jake su suspected, um, he's faced with some problems along the way. Yes. And, and that question about whether it's a gift or a curse is is particularly heightened when you consider what's in the trunk, which since we're in a no spoiler zone, that's all I'm going to say about it. Right. Uh, <laughs> let's see. How do we talk about the trunk? <laughs> I think we just say go see the movie or when the movie yeah, available, go see, go see watch the movie. it and find out. Um, <laughs> it's it's established in the trailer so we can talk about the trunk a little bit. Um, the trailer isn't complete just yet, but without spoiling it, essentially, uh, to anyone listening, TJ, amongst other things, while fixing the car with uh, our Billy, who is played by Paul Guilfoyle, they come across something that is a, a large steel box welded to the trunk or the floor of the trunk um, with no seams. And he still chooses to go, which... It's almost like a crypt. It, it is. It look and Jake's character uh, calls it imp improvisationally calls it a coffin. So we'll let you guys go watch the movie and see what's actually in the trunk um, and why this father has him bringing this car across the country. Have you yourself ever done the uh, coast to coast drive? Are you ready for this? <laughs> I am. Seven times. Seven times. My goodness. Okay. You got me beat. I've done it four. <laughs> Seven times. I have done uh twice with the with the movie. Yeah. From Boston to uh LA. I've gone once from Florida to 
uh, LA. I've gone twice from my hometown, North Carolina, uh, to LA. And then one time from Atlanta, Georgia to LA. So I have literally done the Northern route, uh, the Southern route, the Midwest route, and then the longest route possible, which I did as a kind of an adventure as, as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, were these trips of necessity or was this sort of wonderlust? Uh, only one of them were wonderlust. And that <laughs> one was so much fun. We visited all the national parks. We went to the, the best places in the U S that, that you could see. Um, we kind of mapped out our trip and then the others were trips of necessity. A couple of times I helped, uh, yeah, helped one, one of the things I really did enjoy about your film is that, um, yeah, having, uh, having driven cross country numerous times myself, you're, you, you do a great job in sort of capturing that feeling of possibility and romance, uh, about just, I, I always just find it remarkable that we live in a country with a highway system where you can literally wake up in Boston, point your car West and with, not that much deviation, really, particularly once you start yeah. hitting the the route 40, the route 10, the route 20, you know, pretty much just drive west in the the nation just reveals itself to you with the the the, the change of topography and the landscape. Um, and I thought you did a fantastic job, you know, capturing that that B-roll that feels integral to the film. And it's not just wallpaper. I think that that was one of the the earlier decisions of this film and the beauty of this film isn't just what the script offers. It isn't just what the music offers. It isn't just what the actors offer. It's the fact that it's kind of a love letter to the U.S. and the forgotten roads of the U.S. And, and that is bound by the car, honestly, because the car could only go 55 miles an hour without overheating. So there's a very uh, there's a very entertaining sequence where where that is uh, uh, pointed out. Right. And so we, too, were forced to drive back roads. And so you've driven across the country. You know how monotonous the the open, you know, I-40. It is boring. Yeah, it is very seldomly, you know, landscape beauty because you're so that you're you're navigating around the beauty. That's right. what those interstates force you to do. And so we took it upon ourselves to veer off the beaten path, you know, go off the beaten path um, to get to some of those beauty shots. As, as as one who has done my share of location scouting and and the um, being in charge of the acquisition of permits and such, uh, I was just thinking about, um, you know, what was involved in getting permission to shoot in the Grand Canyon and and some of the other, uh, you know, national uh, uh, landscapes and landmarks that, that that you shot at. So as of a couple of years ago, you can actually film in a national park without any permits whatsoever. If you have a crew size that is a crew size that leaves a small enough footprint. Oh, interesting. OK. Yep. It was something that was passed. And the same thing goes with um, state and federal buildings. You don't have to pay to shoot in state and federal buildings because we as taxpayers pay for all of that stuff. So yeah. um, we contacted all of the people and got the approval. And that's when they informed me like, hey, if your crew size is smaller than um, this, then you can do that. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, So we made sure that wherever we were, we had the appropriate amount of people to not tip the scale um, to get the shots that we wanted. And because of the nature of such a small independent film, we could move very, very easily with very, very light, uh, a very, very light footprint and still get really, really beautiful stuff. So. So as I mentioned, this is your uh, debut as a director. Um, As you think about possibly uh, your next directorial effort, uh, what lessons uh, did you learn from this experience that you that you know you'll be bringing to future experiences? Uh, The most prominent lesson that I learned uh, was paying closer attention to my talent and how they like to be communicated with. Because you're essentially, as a director and producer, you're you're essentially, you're dealing with 40, 50 different personality types. Right. And oftentimes in a, in a single scene, you might have five different personality types that you're trying to get your vision across. They're trying to get their vision across. The writer is trying to get their vision across. The DP wants his vision to be seen. And you have to have, you have to be cognizant of all of those things. And it didn't, excuse me. uh, It didn't dawn on me until we had a moment. um, Let me see how I can say this. The moment uh, by the campfire Mm -hmm. with Jay and Maeve um, with the book. Yep. Yep. um, The book of poetry. In that scene, uh, and hopefully I did a well enough job, uh, how that scene concludes, it showcases empathy. It showcases care um, without being overly sexualized. Mm -hmm. Yes, most definitely. And that was a conversation that was had between me, um, our Maeve, Catherine, and Finn, who plays TJ. for quite a bit of time just to get to that one simple thing. It took a lot of conversation for them to see where my head was at with what the script said versus what they wanted to do versus what I wanted to do versus how we wanted to shoot it. And we had to tie just for that one simple moment. And it dawned on me in that moment, I was like, Oh my gosh. Like I walked away from that scene knowing Chasen, you've got to start paying attention really, really close to how people like to be communicated with. Essentially, what's your love language? How do you like to be talked to? Are you the type of person that said, like, is this the type of actor that says, uh, give me a vague description, I'll fill in the points? Or are they the type of actor that wants to go, tell me exactly what you want, and I'll do that? Sure. Because both are extremely talented people. It takes a talented person to do both of those things. Sure. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about communicating with crew and uh, talent during this process. So I'm very, I'm just ultimately grateful and humbled to be here at this point. So I'm looking forward to what the future has. And I'm sure on all my other sets, I'm going to continue to be a student of the art every step of the way. And in terms of uh, Polara, uh, now that the film is completed, and I know that you're working on a, a, a trailer, um, what's the most immediate plan in terms of festival participation or finding distribution? We have we have been very, very fortunate. Um, our executive producer and writer, uh, this is not his 
first rodeo. And this is um, Bill Haney. Bill Haney. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, our, uh, this is not my first rodeo in terms of producing, but it is in terms of directing. So I've been very much a student uh, in regards to the directing side of things. Um, but we have a very sound plan in terms of uh, our festival run. We've uh, coordinated with um, a few programmers and we've already submitted to a handful, well, more than a handful of um, very well-known uh, festivals. And we're hopeful. Well, we're in limbo right now. We're waiting mm -hmm. to see if we're even going to be accepted. Um, if we're fortunate enough to be accepted, then I will consider it a great honor. So far, the film is um, getting getting some good reviews from mm -hmm. very, very capable people, <laughs> if you will. Uh, so I'm very humbled by their reception of the project. And we're looking forward to seeing where this can go uh, once we finish the festival run. We're, we're all optimistic at this point, much like the film. Uh, it's been an adventure, but we're, we're hopeful. Well, I wish you the best. We're, we're certainly going to be following closely on the, uh, the fate of the film in terms of uh, it finding its audience, which it most deservedly should. And I think, you know, a lot of audio, a lot of viewers are going to come away feeling all of those things that you just referenced. There's that, there's the energy of the road movie. There's the sort of the, the hope of youth and, and optimism over cynicism. Uh, and I congratulate you on, directing your first feature which is polara and i've been speaking with chasen beecham the director of the film thanks for your time and thanks for the movie michael thank you so much for your time and uh to everyone out there i appreciate your support 